Well, hey, good morning again. If you have a Bible with you, why don't you open up to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at a familiar text this morning that I hope will encourage us as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. So we'll be in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, and if you have notes this morning, uh, you can see there on the, the title of this morning's sermon being, um, A Child is Born. A child is born, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. I'll read verses 6 and 7, but we're just going to focus on verse 6 this morning in our time together as we prepare our hearts here to worship our risen king. So Isaiah, right there in your Old Testament, chapter 9, uh, verses 6 and 7, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father, we do want to come to you this morning and sing Gloria in our hearts as we are preparing for worship this morning as we've already entered in and as we continue through your word and as we continue throughout this season. God, I pray that you would help us to really focus on the truths that we'll be learning this morning from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Such a familiar passage. I pray that you would open it up to us in new and in fresh ways that would encourage our hearts this morning as we look to Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we're enjoying our last Sunday before Christmas, when we come together next week, it'll be on the 26th, the day after Christmas, I thought I'd start off by sharing with you just a couple of funny things related to the holidays. All right? So as you're planning on giving and receiving gifts this year around the tree with your family and maybe some friends, uh, sometimes you get gifts that you don't know how to respond. You know, maybe it wasn't what you were expecting. Maybe it wasn't even what you were wanting. So here's a couple of responses, eight possible responses to weird Christmas gifts. Are you ready? Number eight, you could say, well, 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 now there's a gift. <laughs> Number seven, no, really, I didn't know that there was a chia pet tie. Oh, wow, and it's a clip-on, too. Number six, you know I always wanted one of these. Jog my memory, what's it called again? (laughs) Number five, you know what? I'm going to find a special place to put this. (laughs) Number four, all right, number four, hey boy, you don't see craftsmanship like that every day. (laughs) Number three, and it's such an interesting color too. Number two, you say that's the last one? Am I glad you snapped that baby up? And then number one thing that you could say with a gift that you don't like is you could say, you shouldn't have. (laughs) No, really, I mean it, you shouldn't have. Just some funny things to help prepare you for Christmas morning. Did you hear about the lady who waited until the last minute to send out Christmas cards She knew she had 49 folks on her list, so she rushed to the store and bought a package of 50 cards. Without really looking at them, she mailed them and sent them off to her friends without really reading the message that was inside. 
Then on Christmas Day, when things quieted down somewhat, she happened to come across that last leftover card and finally read the message that she had sent to 49 of her friends. And much to her dismay, it said, this card is just to say, a little gift is on its way. (laughs) There's a little boy who ran to the kitchen with a big box in his hand and breathlessly told his mother, We'd better tell Santa Claus to forget about the train I asked for. I just found one at the top shelf of Daddy's closet. (laughs) Don't go snooping around too much these next few days. Uh, One child wrote a letter to Santa which read, Dear Santa, you did not bring me anything good last year. You did not bring me anything good the year before that. This is your last chance. (laughs) Signed, Alfred threatening Santa Claus. My goodness. There's four stages in the life of a man, some say. Number one, he believes in Santa Claus. Number two, he doesn't believe in Santa Claus. Number three, he is Santa Claus. And number four, he looks like Santa Claus. (laughs) Oh, man. I think that I could speak for all of us here at Placerita Bible Church to say that while we enjoy many of the festive things about the holidays, we know that Christmas has nothing to do with Santa Claus. In fact, Christmas has nothing to do with candy canes, Christmas lights, or tinsel. Christmas is not about stockings or chimneys, and it's not about toys. Christmas is not about gingerbread houses, I'm sad to say. It's not about dipped chocolate. And it's not about baking Christmas cookies. Christmas is not about the songs that we sing or about the presents that we bring because Christmas is all about Christ. Now, there's a way that we can enjoy decorations and cooking Christmas uh, goodies to the glory of God, right? We understand that. But I'm just saying Christmas in and of itself, if you just boil it down, it's only about Jesus, nothing else. Christmas is about the good news of great joy that will be for all peoples. Christmas is about how Jesus was born on that very day in the city of David as a savior who would save his people from their sins. Christmas is about the babe who was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Christmas is about salvation in Christ. Christmas is about our salvation in Christ, who is a light to the Gentiles and who brings joy to his people, Israel. Christmas is about God's promise to send his son, the Messiah, to save his people from their sin. Christmas is about Jesus, God's gift to us, who would die on the cross for our sins and be resurrected on the third day as Lord over all. Christmas is about Christ. And we know that it started with this Christ child who was born on that very first Christmas. And this morning, as we reflect on the true meaning of Christmas, I want to give you three observations that we can take from our text this morning in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We will see, number one, the unforgettable incarnation of Christ. Number two, the divine identification of Christ. And then third, we'll see the exciting coronation of Christ. And so let's start with number one this morning, which says the unforgettable incarnation of Christ. And if you are taking notes this morning, I'm going to give you a little bit of the context. That's your first blank, the context of Isaiah. Again, we're in chapter 9, verse 6, for 
to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The context of Isaiah. The basic theme of the book of Isaiah is found in his name, which means salvation is from the Lord. Isaiah the prophet is described by some as the St. Paul of the Old Testament. Isaiah the book is sometimes called the Mount Everest of Hebrew prophecy. Many of you may already know that the book of Isaiah functions as a miniature Bible. And by that, I simply mean that Isaiah has 66 chapters, just like the Bible has 66 books. And the first 39 of those chapters correspond to to the 39 Old Testament books and emphasize God's righteous character, his holy nature, and his judgments. And the last 27 chapters of Isaiah correspond to the 27 books of the New Testament when demonstrate God's glory, his compassion, and his amazing grace. Isaiah's prophetic ministry covers 60 years from 740 to 680 BC, and it coincides with the reigns of four different kings who served the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah began his ministry near the end of Uzziah's reign, and it continued through the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And during this time, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria in 722 B.C. In the northern kingdom of Israel, when it fell to Assyria, it never recovered as a nation. In the New Testament, the northern kingdom became referred to as the Samaritans, who were looked down upon for intermarrying together with the unbelieving Gentiles, and they were even worshiping at different altars other than the temple of Jerusalem. And so Isaiah was written to warn the southern kingdom of Judah not to fall into the same sins of her northern sister. And Isaiah condemned empty ritualism and idolatry that many were falling into. Even though God delivered Judah from Sennacherib and the Assyrian forces, Isaiah foresaw the coming Babylonian captivity of Judah because of their own sin. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the prophet announces God's judgment upon the immoral and idolatrous people, beginning with Judah, then the nations around Judah, and then upon the whole world. In the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, he shines a light on the Messiah who will come and he will rescue his people from their sins. There will be a Savior who will bear bear a cross and who will be resurrected from the dead and who will reign supremely over all. And while Isaiah would announce the overthrow of Judah, God would also remain faithful to his covenant by preserving a godly remnant and promising salvation and deliverance through the coming Messiah. The Savior will come out of Judah and accomplish the work of redemption and restoration. And even the Gentiles will come into his light, and the universal blessing of all people will finally come into fruition through the salvation that Christ provides. Other than the passage that we're looking at this morning of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, the other theme verse of this book would be Isaiah 53, 6. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. No matter 
who you are today, that verse reminds us that you and I are sinners. Each one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. And we have all turned to our own way of thinking, believing that our way is better than God's way. But the good news of Christmas is that for unto us a child is born, a son is given. There there is hope today for every lost soul and every struggling soul because the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And that means that if you are in Christ this morning, that Jesus died in your place. He bore your sin and he paid the price for your sin so that you could be given new life. And with this historical context of the book of Isaiah, the passage that we're studying this morning is all the more important, all the more kind of opens up to us in a way that we can have greater understanding with greater clarity. That's the context of Isaiah. Let's move on to our next blank that talks about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. If you look back to verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This verse is kind of leading us up to the birth of Christ. And he's simply talking about that God is moving his people from gloom to glory. There was a former time when God did bring judgment to the land of Zebulun, as verse 1 says, and the land of Naphtali because of Israel's sin. And this is discussing the gloom and anguish of Israel. They were facing incredibly difficult times. The coming Assyrian invasion of northern Israel was a direct result of their sin. You know, sin has consequences. And when you disobey God, as the northern kingdom had done, and as now the southern kingdom is starting to fall into a similar thing, when you disobey God in your own life, and you're pursuing your own sin, there's a price that we have to pay for that. And you have to be reminded this morning that no one can deliver you except God. And no one can truly help you except God. And no one can bring you through except God. Your money is useless. Your status in the world is meaningless. Your good looks, your good health, and your good works get you absolutely nowhere in a spiritual battle against sin and evil. But in the latter time, verse 1 says, he made a glorious way upon the sea, the land of Jordan beyond the, the, the land beyond the Jordan, he mentions the Galilee of nations. And so there is a prophecy about the coming Christ. In the latter time, about 700 years later, there would be a glorious Savior who would come. And he would come the way of the sea, which is a reference to a major international highway running through the region. In fact, the Assyrian soldiers took that route when they invaded the northern kingdom. And he's saying that through that same route in that same area will come a Messiah. And he will come and he will wipe away the gloom and the darkness brought on by the Gentile domination. Jesus will minister on both sides of the Jordan as demonstrated in the Gospels. As it said, Jesus ministered in the area of the Decapolis or these 10 Gentile cities that were all over the area of Galilee, which was known as more of a Gentile region. We also read in verse 2, Isaiah 9, 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. 
We understand, again, he's pointing and he's pointing and he's pointing to Jesus. He's talking about this great light. Isaiah mentions it again in Isaiah 58, verse 8. Then your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Talking about the great light, Isaiah says again in chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And we know that the light is talking about Christ. Jesus confirmed so much in John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Have you seen the light this morning? Maybe you used to be in the darkness, but by God's grace, he has opened your eyes And he's brought you out of the gloom and the anguish that you've faced in previous enslavement to sin. And you've seen Christ. And that's what this passage is talking about for Israel as a nation. And certainly we can apply that personally to us as individuals. Verses 3 through 5, as we lead up now to our main verse, these verses 3 through 5 are all about how because of Christ, Israel and anyone who comes to Christ today can have their sadness turned into joy and their defeat turned into victory because Christ has broken every bondage and he has vanquished every foe. So that we've seen the context of Isaiah We've seen the coming of the Messiah being taught here in verses 1 through 5. And then we just jump in right here to verse 6, where we see now a clear focus of the incarnation. The incarnation, I'm talking about the crux of the incarnation now. At the very end of, uh, or at the, at the very beginning, I should say, of verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born. For to us a child is born. That's really the crux of the incarnation is that God became a man, and that Jesus was born as a human being. And we read a little bit about that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Bible says that he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. That is the incarnation. And when it says that Jesus emptied himself, it's not saying that somehow he stopped being God. He never emptied himself of his divinity. Rather, he added to his nature humanity. And he had a dual nature where he was fully God and fully man. The word humbled himself there in Philippians 2 means that he laid himself low, that he would be born in the likeness of man, that he humbled himself to that degree, that Jesus Christ Always fully God and fully man, but now he was confined in a sense in one person with flesh. It's an amazing thought, the incarnation. This took place through the virgin birth. The Bible clearly asserts that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother. Mary uh, uh, he was, was the mom, but he had no physical earthly father. It was a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And without a human father... Matthew 118 uh, tells us that uh, it was, it was uh, by, by the Holy Spirit that, that he came to be without a human father. Listen to Matthew 118. It says, now the birth of Christ took place in this way when the mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found with child from the Holy Spirit. 
It was the angel Gabriel who said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 34 and 35, and Mary said to the angel, how shall this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born shall be called Holy, the Son of God. And so we have to understand this morning as Christians that the significance of the virgin birth is so important. To understand that Mary never was with a human father. She never was, that Jesus didn't have a human father, but rather God in heaven is his father. And we understand the significance of the virgin birth. We were just reading through that this week. I mentioned to you about our our theology class for the men. Uh, We are studying a book called Biblical Doctrine by Wayne Grudem. And on the virgin birth, he gave three vital implications um, that highlight its importance. It shows the salvation uh, ultimately must come from the Lord. You think about the virgin birth, again, it was God who came to earth in the form of a man. And when you think about salvation, it's God who pursues you in your sin. It wasn't somehow uh, stirred up by a thought of man, but it was completely a thought and an act of God. That's what the virgin birth shows, that salvation ultimately must come from the Lord. A second um, implication the virgin birth gives us is that it made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity. It's only by the virgin birth that we could say Jesus really is fully God and fully man. He had half of his, his uh, DNA, if you will, provided by Mary and half of his DNA miraculously provided by the Holy Spirit. A third observation we can make is that it makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. So we talk a lot in theology about original sin, which just simply means the sin of Adam and Eve was passed down to all of us. Romans 5 talks about in Adam we all sinned, and yet in Christ we can all be made new. Well, that's made possible because of the virgin birth, because Christ did not have a sinful nature. He had a fully divine nature, and yet he was at the same time fully human. And so we're learning again about this virgin birth. The crux of the incarnation is just that, that God would come to earth in the form of a baby. This is the doctrine of the virgin birth or the doctrine of the incarnation. What a, what a beautiful, biblical, and amazing truth we find in the doctrine of the virgin birth. In fact, Grudem feels so strongly about this that he gives this quote at the end of the chapter that we read this week, and he says this, quote, Speaking on the virgin birth, he says, It is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. You know, when I first read the quote, I'm like, come on, man. You can't get more amazing than the resurrection. You can't get more amazing than creation. And yet emphasizing this doctrine, that's what Grudem writes, at least, far more amazing than the resurrection and the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become a man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity. The most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe, close quote. Makes us stop and think, doesn't it? To ponder. You know, we skip over the virgin birth. We sing songs about about it. Round yon virgin. I remember as a child, I'm like, what in the world does that mean? You know, round what? You know, uh, so, you know, it's just like, it's just like we need to just pause for a minute and just think, you know what? I can't even fathom it. 
I can't contain that Isaiah would tell um, Israel that we could learn today, for unto us a child is born. And as we work through the verse, we're seeing that this is a divine child. The profundity of it ought to just blow our minds. And so we're looking again at the unforgettable incarnation of Christ, but we're also this morning looking at our second heading, the divine identification of Christ. The divine identification of Christ. There's lots of claims your next blank, of Jesus being the Son of God in the Bible. And I'm getting this from the second part there, verse 6, for unto us a child is born. That's emphasizing his humanity. And then it says, a son is given. And that's emphasizing Jesus' deity. And there's lots of claims, again, about Jesus being the Son of God. As to us, a son is given, is pointing to the divinity of Christ. And we have seen the humanity of Christ, that the child was to be born, but now we're talking about this divine identification of the child as a son. And not just any son, but this is the Son of God. Remember again what was said in Luke 1.35 when the angel answered Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born and will be called holy, the Son of God. And so God himself refers to Jesus as his Son. And he does that many times throughout the Bible. He does it at Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3, verse 17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Yet again, we, have, we hear uh, God's voice on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Uh, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God in John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Paul refers to the son, uh, Jesus as the son of God in Romans 1.4 and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The author of Hebrews refers to Jesus as the son of God in Hebrews 1.8, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And so I'm just saying there are a lot of direct statements throughout the Bible claiming that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, and they are affirming, all of them are affirming Jesus' deity. Jesus certainly says so much as he does in John 10.30 when he says, I and the Father are one. This means that the Father and the Son are one in essence, one in power, and one in deity. And these are all claims that the Bible makes, but there's also not just claims that the Bible outright makes, but there's evidence, your next blank, evidence of Jesus being the Son of God. Well, Jesus asserted his eternality. If you remember, Jesus said in John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's another way that Jesus is claiming to be divine. He's claiming to be the eternal Son of God. And that's why the Jews picked up stones to throw at him because they knew he was committing or they thought that he was committing the sin of blasphemy by claiming to be before Abraham and being the great I am. But he is, right? He is the great I am. And he is the son of God. That's what the son of God means. It's stressing again his divine sovereignty. And this is a kind of authority that was really possessed by God alone. 
This was seen by the fact that Jesus could forgive sins. It is also evident in, in what is said, you know, as throughout the New Testament, Jesus says, thus, uh, he says, for it is written, for it is written, different Bible authors reply to the scripture as what was written, but Jesus says, you have heard it said, it is written, but I say to you. So he's placing himself on par with the divine authority of God, so hey, it's been written, but I also am saying to you on that same plane. Another evidence of Jesus being the Son of God would be his omnipotence, or that he has all power. Jesus calmed the storm. Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. Jesus changed the water into wine. Jesus healed the sick, and he raised the dead. And all of these miracles show us that Jesus has power over creation. Jesus was also omniscient, which means that he knows all things. Jesus knew the thoughts of men. Jesus knew about the things that were going to happen to him. And Jesus knew that one day he would be coming back again. One final aspect of the deity of Christ is the fact that he was counted worthy to be worshipped. Jesus was given the name that was above every name. And Jesus received worship while he was here on earth. In Hebrews 1.6, God even commands the angels to worship Christ. So again, we're looking at how the Bible makes undeniable claims that Jesus is the Son of God. The Bible gives tons of evidence that Jesus is the Son of God, which begs the question of your next blank, the significance of Jesus being the Son of God. You might say, well, so what? He's the Son of God. I learned that in Sunday school years ago. So what? What's the significance of Jesus being the Son of God? Well, only someone who is infinite God could bear the full penalty for all the sins of those who would repent and believe in him. Only God could do that. And God chose to do it in the form of a man, which is why we read in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so when God gave his son to die for us, he didn't send us an imperfect son. He didn't send us a flawed son. He didn't send us a son with any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He sent us his perfect son, who was the perfect sacrifice, who alone could make us righteous by imputing his righteousness to our account So the significance of Jesus being the Son of God is the fact that salvation comes from the Lord. You can't earn your salvation. You can't receive salvation by any earthly credential. Salvation is a gift of God, not of a human being. No creature, no earthly treasure can save a person from their sins, only God himself. And so only someone who is truly and fully God can be made as the mediator between God and man. You understand that, right? God is holy. Mankind is sinful. The only way that we could bridge the gap between God and man is through Christ. It's not through the church. It's not through Mary. It's not through your good works. It's not through your hard work and effort. It's only through Christ, which is why 1 Timothy 2.5 says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So this is the significance of Jesus being fully human and fully divine. He is born to us 
and he is born as the son, as we're told here again in verse 6, where unto us a son is given. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said about this incredible divine hypostatic union of Jesus being fully God and fully man. Charles Spurgeon writes this, quote, Tell me one attribute of God that is not manifest in Jesus, and your ignorance shall be the reason why you have not seen it so. The whole of God is glorified in Christ, and though some part of the name of God is written in the universe, it is here best read in him who was the Son of Man and yet the Son of God. And so we realize that all of this is packed in this wonderful prophecy of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, for to us a son is given. And what you need this Christmas is Jesus Christ. He's the only perfect gift that you'll get. And I guarantee you, you won't repeat those eight things that I read to you earlier. If you're focusing on Christmas, it's all about receiving this perfect gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need more stuff. You don't need any magic. You don't need a Christmas miracle in the sense of the Hallmark movies, right? You need a Christmas miracle. That's Jesus. That's Jesus giving you a new heart and a new life. That's what you need. That's the only Christmas miracle that's available for you this morning is the transformation of your heart to be made into the image of God, which you are a creation, but be recreated in the image of Christ, as Dave talked about this morning, that's when you become a Christian. And so we understand here this all happens because Jesus is the child who is born. He is the son who was given. Well, let's look now at our third and final heading this morning as we've talked a little bit about his humanity, his divinity, but let's look at the exciting coronation of Christ, because this is really what I wanted to point us to this morning, is this last part of verse 6, which says, um, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, and you read the four things that are given there that, that we'll get to. So your next blank here says, under the exciting coronation of Christ, is Christmas is about two advents. Christmas is about two advents. Number one, when Jesus came as a baby. That's what we're reading about in the first part of verse 6. A, son, a child was born, a son was given. So when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, that was the first advent. When Jesus came as a baby, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and he was laid in a manger. And then we know Jesus lived a perfect life and he died on a cross and he was raised from the dead and he ascended to the Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. That's all talking about the first incarnation. What we celebrate is Christmas, or the first and only incarnation. I'm saying the first advent, right? But there's a second advent, number two, and it's when Jesus comes back. The first advent is when he came as a baby. The second advent is when Jesus comes back. So in a sense, we're living between the two Christmases, we're living between the two advents of Christ to earth. And that second advent is when Jesus comes back for his own. And I'm not referring here to the rapture when we're caught up with him in the air. But I'm referring instead to the second coming, which would be after the rapture and the seven-year tribulation. And then at that point, the second coming when Jesus comes back to earth to wipe away his enemies and to vanquish every foe and to reign as the leader of the government. That's what Isaiah is starting to talk about here when he's saying, hey, he was a child, he was a son, but you know what? On him, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Two advents of Christ as a baby 
and he's coming back at the second coming. In fact, Micah 5.2, which we know is incredible prophecy about where Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, talks about both advents. Typically, we think about Micah 5.2 as only being like, oh, well, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Listen to what it says, Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, that's a second word delineating which Bethlehem, because there's actually another Bethlehem in Jerusalem, or excuse me, in Israel, but this Bethlehem is closer to Jerusalem where the Christ child will be born. Here's what he says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth for me, that's all talking about the first advent. It's all going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to come forth. The rest of Micah 5.2 says, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from ancient of old, from the ancient of days. And so not only, again, is the text talking about he'll be born in Bethlehem, but he'll come forth as a ruler. And that happens at his second advent. Not only was Jesus born in Bethlehem, but he's to rule Israel and the whole world. Zechariah 14.9 says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Isaiah says so much again in Isaiah 22, 22, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David and he shall open and no one will shut and he will shut and no one shall open. So the figurative language of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, about the government being upon Christ's shoulder and the key of the house of David that Isaiah mentioned in Isaiah 22, 22, being placed on his shoulder, both the government and the key, pictures Jesus as if he were wearing a kingly robe and that he has all kingly authority. And as king, he will be responsible to govern the nation. Now remember in Isaiah's day, the, the Judean leaders were incompetent to govern the people properly. That's why what happened to the northern kingdom happened, and now the southern kingdom is being threatened. And while they would be delivered from the Assyrians, they would eventually give way to the Babylonians. But still, in light of that, is this promise of this coming king, and the government will be upon his shoulders. The, the Messiah will come back, and he will govern properly. He will govern perfectly. He will govern powerfully. There'll be no UN. There'll be you no know, United States president. You won't have to wor worry about, the, about Putin or the president of China. We're talking about one who will come one day. He will reign over all. I believe all this will be a reference to Christ's reign in the millennium, the, what we call the millennial kingdom. He reigns in the hearts of his people, even now, as a spiritual king. But he is coming back to set up a kingdom on earth where well, he will reign physically for a thousand years. You can look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. And so back here to Isaiah 9, 6, we're just saying that the rest of this verse is now describing who Jesus is today and how he is to be seen in the millennial kingdom as well as throughout all of eternity. And so here we see four Descriptive names that will reveal his character. You ready? Four descriptive names of Christ. Number one, he will be, and I'm saying is already in our hearts, but he will physically be, as he rules in the millennium, a wonderful counselor. 
He is the wonderful counselor. There's some, um, some commentaries that will split up wonderful and counselor as two different descriptors because they're both nouns, but I put them together. I think that it works better that way, and there's a lot of um, reasons why I think that. But the word wonderful counselor here, the word wonderful means extraordinary or marvelous. It sometimes is used to refer to the testimonies of God's law. More often, it is used to describe God's dealings with his people. This would include acts of judgment and acts of redemption. These acts go beyond one's ordinary power. This word is used to describe what only God can do. He's a what? He's a wonderful counselor. Only God could counsel this way. Only Christ could be this kind of counselor. And in this context, we're talking about this wonderful counselor. Again, the word means the counselor is exceptional or he is distinguished. There is no one holy like the Lord and there is no one as wonderful as he. I mean, do you remember when the angel of the Lord, which was the pre-incarnate Christ, appeared to Manoah? to tell him that his wife was to have a child and they would be called Samson. Manoah insisted to know the name of this pre-incarnate Christ. And in Judges 13, 18, we read, and the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, saying that it is wonderful? So he's been referred to, Christ is wonderful, all throughout the scripture. When God told Solomon about the temple that was to be built, he said in 2 Chronicles 2, 9, for the house I am to build will be great and wonderful. And we know that the temple ultimately points to Christ. At the end of Job, when Job is completely humbled and repents in dust and ashes before Almighty God, Job says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Psalm 9.1, I give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Psalm 119, verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. Psalm 139, verse 6 says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And so we're reading, again, this is the word wonderful used throughout the Bible to refer to Christ, to refer to Scripture, to refer to the temple, to refer to God's incredible acts. They're all wonderful. And Isaiah 28, 29 says, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Well, with all that being read and thought about, why would you go to anyone else to receive counsel? There is no one who possesses all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And yet so many times we start to go to the internet and we start to go to the world of psychology and we start to go try to find research that tries to somehow explain why we are like we are or why we're struggling with what we're struggling with. And I just want to remind us as a church today that we want to come to Christ. We want to come to the wonderful counselor. I'm not saying that you should never go to a doctor. Of course we are concerned about organic disease and empirical data that would show uh, things that modern medicine could help with. But you understand what I'm saying. In the world of psychology, you start to get into areas of, of, of philosophy and areas of thought that are trying to explain human behavior without using the Bible or the wonderful counsel which God gives through his word. Again, why would you go anywhere else to receive counsel on that? 
There is no one who possesses all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. There's no human authority that can tell you about the recesses of a man's heart and the glories of God's truth. So let me encourage you, if you need counsel today, come to God and take him at his word. If you need direction today, look no further than the path outlined in the divine precepts of Scripture. If you need instruction today, come and sit at the feet of the great teacher. If you need encouragement today, receive the perspective of the great comforter. If you need help today, don't take your problems to mere man with limited knowledge and often confused in application. Rather, come to the wonderful counselor and gladly Listen to him as the authoritative one who knows all things. Remember, the government's going to be upon his shoulder. He is a wonderful counselor. But we also read a second description of Jesus. He is mighty God. Mighty God. Some have suggested that this title is simply referring to a godlike person or a hero. But Isaiah meant way more than that. For we've already, he's already spoken of the Messiah doing what no other person could do in verses 2 through 5. Isaiah understood the Messiah to be God in the same sense that God was God. It's what Jesus is written about him in John 1, 1 through 3, that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with him in the beginning and without him Nothing was made that has been made. And so we understand that Jesus, in a sense, is God, right? We understand his humanity. We've discussed that already, but here it's being stressed of his divinity. Jesus was indeed God, but he was also Emmanuel, God with us. And he was with us most intimately through the incarnation. The word mighty means strength. It means power. It could even be translated, I said, as hero, And in a world where heroes are often determined by athletic prowess, personal talent, or financial power, we are told that the only true one who is mighty is Jesus Christ. His might is unparalleled. And the Bible clearly states that Christ displayed his might by creating the world. Before he was physically entering into the world at the incarnation, we read about Jesus creating the world in Colossians 1, 16 through 17, for by him all things were created. We're talking about Jesus, created it all in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What a mighty God Jesus truly is, right? Jesus' display of might in the act of creation, distinguished him from mere humans. Christ showed us his might in the ability to create, to make something out of nothing. It takes divine might to truly create, and Christ demonstrated that power in the most profound way by creating the universe. And then we know throughout his ministry on earth, he constantly showed us his power over nature, His power over disease, his power over demons, his power over sin, his power over death. Well, no wonder Paul said in Romans 1-4 that Jesus was the Son of God with power. In 1 Corinthians 1-24, Paul refers to Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
And if you are in Christ this morning, that same power dwells in you. Remember, Acts 1.8, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, right? He will send power in the Holy Spirit. It will be in you. You will be his witness, and you will have power over sin and power to be a truly changed life. This is what it means when it refers to Christ again as a mighty God. Philippians 4.13, Paul wrote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What a great promise. He will strengthen us for all of the circumstances and all of the inevitabilities of life. This doesn't mean that we will never know pain or hardship or difficulty, but that we can endure the trials that we walk and we can walk through them victoriously. And how can we do that? It's by resting in Christ's power and not in our own. Peter wrote that we are kept by the power of God and that nothing can overcome God's power to keep us away from Christ. And what great assurance is there to know that we are secure, not because of our own ability to hold on to him, but because of his amazing power that is holding on to us. Jesus, the mighty God, the omnipotent supreme ruler, will rule over Israel, and he will rule over our hearts. So Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. Third, Jesus is the everlasting Father. Now, if mighty God didn't puzzle you, many people are puzzled by this title because how can Jesus be referred to as the everlasting Father? I mean, isn't Jesus the Messiah distinguished between God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in the Trinity? How can the Son be the Father? Well, in order to answer this question, several things must be noted. First, the Messiah, being the second person of the Trinity, is in essence God. Therefore, he has all the attributes of God, including eternality. And since God is one, even though he exists in three persons, the Messiah is God. Another thing to note would be this, the title, this is probably the most helpful thing that you need to note, the title, Everlasting Father, is an idiom meaning an expression that does not describe the Messiah's relationship to time. It describes his, or I said that wrong, let me say it again. It's an expression to describe the Messiah's relationship to time, not his relationship to the other members of the Trinity. So nowhere in here is he trying to say somehow, well, everlasting father means Jesus is now partly father, partly son. No, no, no. This term, this, this expression refers again to his relationship to time, not to his relationship with the other members of the Trinity. Jesus is simply said to be everlasting, just as God the Father is everlasting. God is the ancient of days, according to Daniel 7, 9. In fact, Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or you were ever formed the earth of the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. And in the same way that God is everlasting, this verse is simply saying that Jesus is everlasting. And in the same way the Davidic covenant made to David stated that he would have a son and a kingdom, which 2 Samuel 7 16 says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. So just as the Davidic covenant is talking about Christ's kingdom will last forever, this phrase of, of, of uh, everlasting father is just making that same case. Just as God the Father is the ancient of days and is from everlasting to everlasting, so is God the Son eternal. 
And Isaiah points to the fact that the Messiah is a descendant of David and he will fulfill his promise which the nation of Israel had been waiting. Now, another way to think of, of Jesus' everlasting father is to think of him as the father or as the source of eternity. Eternal himself, he confers eternal life on those who believe in him. The Messiah inhabits and possesses eternity, as Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, that he is high and lifted up and inhabits eternity. So again, all he's saying here with everlasting father is Jesus is eternal, which means this. If you want anything eternal, you must get it from Jesus, who is the father of eternity. If you want eternal life, you must get it from Jesus. If you want eternal joy, you must get it from Jesus. If you want eternal satisfaction, you must get it from Jesus. Why settle for anything less? Jesus is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting father. And then last, we see Jesus is the prince of peace. He is the prince of peace. In Hebrew, shalom. Right? It is Jesus who will bring lasting peace to this troubled world. Jesus is the one who will bring and maintain the time of millennial peace when the nation of Israel will truly be repentant and bow before Jesus as their king. Only Jesus can bring lasting peace into this troubled world, even as we read in Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. So if there's a verse about peace in the Old Testament in Isaiah 9.6, certainly Luke 2.14 reminds us that we can have peace on earth, but that peace on earth is only granted to those to whom which God is well pleased. You're not in Christ and you don't have peace with God through redemption and salvation, then you can't have the peace of God. You've got to first have peace with God, as Romans 5 talks about, in order to have the peace with God, that you have to, the peace, the peace with God is salvation, is what I'm trying to say. The peace of God is the sanctification of understanding that you don't have to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we worship the Prince of Peace. First, giving us peace with God. We were at enmity with him. And now we have the peace of God in our everyday life experience. And so let me ask you this morning, are you at peace today? Is your heart right with God this Christmas? If you don't know the Christ of Christmas, I want to invite you into a personal relationship with him. I mean, that's what Christmas is all about, right? We talked a bit, little bit about some of the fun things that we experienced during this season, but this whole message is built on this whole verse, just reminding us that there was a child who was born. Jesus came into this world into the flesh of a baby. There was a son who was given, which points us back to the son of God, his full divinity. The government shall be placed on his shoulder and he will be called, again, as verse 6 says, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Are you stressed out this Christmas? Shopping, holidays, your budget's already out of control. 
I mean, it can be a little tiring, right? Well, let me encourage you to take a little time each day this week and just come back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and just maybe spend a little time pondering, again, as I've tried to explain to us so we can get a better grasp of the importance of the child who was born, the son who was given, how one day the government will be upon his shoulder, and he will forever be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. If you want prayer this morning, or you want to come to this Prince of Peace this morning, we'll have a few people in the back of our auditorium over there who would love to pray with you and share with you, offer you counsel from the wonderful counselor this morning as you face Christmas. I hope that you'll remember that it's all about Christ, that you'll just take a deep breath and just say, you know what, I'm here to worship Christ. I'm here to focus on Christ. I'm here to receive the gift of Christ this Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for reminding us this morning from Isaiah about who Christ really is. Thank you for the beauty of this just one simple verse to remind us of the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, the authority of Christ with the government being upon his shoulder and all of these characteristics of wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. I pray, God, that you would give us many, many opportunities to meditate and maybe even memorize and just to focus on verses like this throughout Christmas. God, we want to be reminded that the incarnation affects everything in our life today and that we could just be blessed by the the, the names of Christ that we've studied this morning, that they would impact our lives when we get stuck in temporary frustration and we just don't know what to do. Just remind us that Christ is everlasting When we need counsel, help us to come back to the wonderful counselor. When we need you to just move in our lives, God, that we would look at you as a mighty God. I pray that we would come to Christ as the Prince of Peace, God, that this holiday season is there sometimes difficulties with travel and family and even sometimes awkward conversations with family uh, that, that we're not always around. I pray that we would just be reminded you're the Prince of Peace. We want to promote peace this Christmas season, and we want you to be exalted in our hearts as we come back to worship you again and again, every moment of every day of our lives, that we would look at Christ in these ways, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.